Welcome to Divine Truth Podcast with Dr. Stephen M. Huffman. Michael is a senior pastor with Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. The purpose of this podcast is to teach and edify God's people through a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. To learn more about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. And now, here is Pastor Michael Huffman. Chapter 52 is where we're going to begin for our series this morning, Isaiah chapter 52. And after you've found that, I have respect for God's Word, if you would please stand as we read our text. Isaiah chapter 52, uh, beginning in verse number 13. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse number 13. The Bible says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his vintage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. This is the living word of the living God. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us today, and we're so thankful, Father, for this opportunity that we have to open up this great prophet and learn about our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you, Father God, that you would give us clarity of understanding this morning. Help us to see the truth of your word. We praise you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. This passage speaks about Jesus Christ 700 years before he was born. And so does chapter 53, and so does this entire section of Isaiah with many chapters around it directed at the person of the Messiah, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are Christians, we go back to the Old Testament And we see Christ everywhere throughout the Old Testament in both promises and prophecies and predictions about His coming. He is the Savior. He is the only Savior. He is the only Savior the world will ever know. He is the only way to heaven. He is the only Redeemer. Now I understand that there are 20 or so major religions in the world and there are about 300 separate segments in those 200 and those 20 religions and there are I suppose in addition countless tribal and traditional and cultic forms of religion and there are millions upon millions upon millions of personal belief system and one would have a hard time counting up all the imaginary deities that exist in the minds of people However, I want you to understand this morning, church, that all except Christianity are false religions. All except Christianity are deceptive. There is only one God. There is only one Savior. The only God is the Creator and the Redeemer who was introduced to us on the pages of Scripture, who came into the world in the form of Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. And by the way, the only God in all the religion 
to die and rise again to give forgiveness and bring salvation to His people is the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and living only God. Only Christianity, only Christianity presents a Savior. Only Christianity faces the reality that a person cannot earn his way to God. No person can earn forgiveness. No person can earn salvation. No person can earn heaven by goodness, morality, religious activity, ceremony, or ritual. The Bible is very, very clear that salvation is a gift to those who cry out to God for mercy. They cannot be owned. Uh, earned, putting their faith and trust for forgiveness and salvation and heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died to pay their penalty, to take their place. He died and rose triumphantly the third day from the dead as the divine confirmation that he had, by the grace of God, hallelujah to his name, he had fully satisfied the justice and the wrath of Almighty God, and he purchased salvation for every single person that would ever believe. Hallelujah to his name. All people are sinners. All who have ever lived are sinners. All are unable to redeem themselves. All need a Savior. There is only one Savior, Jesus Christ, who died and rose to save His people and bring them to heaven. And that church is the message of Holy Scripture, and that is the truth. That is the Gospel. And that is why death the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are celebrated in the way they are amongst Christians. It is the greatest event in the history of the world. But to put ourselves in the place where Isaiah is, as he writes this 700 years before it happened, let's flash back just a little bit. Let's go back in our minds at a time before Jesus died before He rose from the dead. And let's see if we can't get into the Jewish mindset just a little bit. You see, folks, the Jews had always waited for the Messiah, which means the Anointed One. Yeshua in the Hebrew, Christos in the Greek. Which is simply another way of identifying Him as the King. Because he, the Messiah had promised them greatness. They had been promised prosperity as a nation from the very beginning from the fathers. The promise was made to Abraham and was made to Abraham's sons, the, the patriarchs, and then was repeated again in the history of Israel that God would one day save that nation both temporarily, temporarily and spiritually and bring glory to that nation and through that nation to the world. That's what God's promise was. God would bless that little nation and make them a blessing. And the Jews counted on that promise being fulfilled. The promise was made to David that, that, he would, that one would come and bring about everything out of the line of David. A royal son who would come out of the line of David and would be the king, the anointed one, the Messiah. The one that would bring about all the promises that God made to Israel. Israel, the Jews, they've always been waiting for a king. The king who would deliver them from their enemies, from their bad circumstances, and from all their sufferings. He would fulfill all the Old Testament covenant promises of blessing and prosperity to the nation and, and their influence and bring peace and righteousness to them and through them to the world. The Jews were looking for a king to come 
Every generation of Jews were looking for a king to come. And I guess you might probably say that every family of Jewish people, since the promise was given early on to Abraham and to David, and had been reiterated by the prophets through their history, they were all waiting for the arrival of a king. They were looking for a king like the one that they had originally chosen, Saul. Somebody great and powerful. They were looking for somebody that had military might. Someone who, had a, who was a dominating ruler. Someone who was triumphant. Someone who would deliver them from all the things they hated. All the things they resisted. All the things they resented. And lead them to glory. And through them bring peace and righteousness to the world. And they knew what to look for because the prophets said the Messiah would be a man. He would be the seed of a woman. But the psalmist said that that David would call him Lord. So he will not just be man, but he will also be God. How can this be? Well, Isaiah gave us a hint for that, didn't he? When he said in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. As God-man born of a virgin. He will be the son of Abraham. That's why the genealogy is there. He will come out of the royal line of David. He will come out of the tribe of Judah. He will be born in the little town of Bethlehem. They had so many details by which to identify the Messiah. And so for centuries, that is what they had been looking for. And when Jesus Christ arrived, how did he arrive? How did he arrive? When Jesus Christ arrived, He was born of a virgin out of the line of Abraham, in the line of Judah, in the line of David, born in the town of Bethlehem, and evidenced His deity by words and works the like of which the world had never seen before and power they have never seen since. They should have signed right up. They should have signed right up. All of the qualifications that the Old Testament gave for Messiah were met. But the problem with Israel was, where was the pomp? Where was the circumstance? Where was the fanfare? Where was the military power? I mean, this this guy that you're calling the Messiah, he was born in a fee trough. And he was attended to at his birth by the lowest people on the social ladder, ladder, shepherds. And that was considered really base kind of work. He lived his whole life humbly and average in in an out-of-the-way town called Nazareth. And he collected around himself some of the most not sought-after nobodies to become his messengers. He had no office. He sought no position. He sought no education. He made no friends with the elite. He gathered no army. He presented no strategy to rule. But he had the power, and that was unmistakable and undeniable and highly visible that nobody could do what he could do. He had the power over disease. He had the power over demons. He had the power over death. He had the power over nature. And even with all the disappointment about everything that he was doing, there was, they were still amazed at the reality and the awesomeness of his power. And so for at least one day, one day they thought that Jesus, this Jesus might be the Messiah. And they, they sort of got fired up, if you will, in a, in a massive collection, anticipating the hope of Messiah coming. 
And in spite of all of the disappointment they had, they gathered around at the Passover as Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem for that week. And they threw garments at His feet. They threw uh, palm branches at His feet. And they cried, Hosea, Hosanna to the Son of David, which is a Messianic title. And they praised Him. They said, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And they hailed Him as King. And Messiah, based on His miracles, which the last miracle was His raising of Lazarus from the dead. And they must have hoped that if we can just force the issue, we can gather around and force the issue. I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem, and this was Passover week. And if we can just, if we can, we're all here, we're all collectively here, if we can just, just sort of force it, He can create an instant army, and we can kind of get this thing going, Right? And so they hailed Him as their Messiah. They hailed, they hailed Him as their conqueror, their King. And they were wishing like those two disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus. You remember those guys who said well, that we were, we were hoping that He was our Redeemer. Every Jew from all history was hoping for the Messiah, wishing for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah. The next day, Jesus Christ came back after that triumphal entry and He went on the attack, didn't He? He did everything that they anticipated that He would do. Jesus Christ came back into Jerusalem that day and He went on the attack. But the problem was, He did not attack the Romans who were the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel. He attacked the Jews and He attacked the temple. He made a whip and started throwing people out because they had turned his house of prayer into a house of robbers. He did it at the beginning of his ministry and he did it at the end of his ministry. He assaulted the Jewish religion. He assaulted the Jewish leaders. He assaulted Judaism at the highest point, his peak and his pinnacle. He assaulted the temple. He assaulted the religion. But he never, ever, ever touched the Romans. Something's wrong with this fella. They were already doubtful because he didn't act very kingly. Because when they tried to make him a king, he disappeared. So what did they do? They turned on him. And for the rest of that week, Jesus Christ went on the attack, attacking the false system, the apostate theology of Judaism in the temple, and attacking people with the truth. But the people and the people so turned on him that eventually by Friday they were screaming for his blood, crucify him, crucify him, and they turned him over to the Romans, and that's exactly what they did. They were hoping that the world would be redeemed by this man through Israel. But he wasn't the king they wanted. See, the problem, as we saw the last 14 months in the Sermon on the Mount, what was their Judaism, what was their religion, had developed into a false religion. Like every other religion, that's a religion of deception. It was a system of merit. It was a system of, system of personal credit. It was a system of where you earned your way to God as a good, moral, religious person. That's how they viewed religion. That's how they viewed their relationship with God. That they could do things to get there themselves. And their idea, their thinking, if you want to get in the mind this morning of the people in the first century, which is my job to take you back, not to bring the Word of God now, but take you back there. If you want to get in the mind of the first century Jew, this was their mind. I don't need a savior 
I need a conqueror, but I don't need a Savior. And even John the Baptist, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, there in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, they didn't get it. But all those sacrifices that, that, that had been made for millennia, all those millions of animals that had died, were pointing to the one final sacrifice, the Lamb whose death would truly satisfy the righteous demands of God and pay the penalty of sin, and they still didn't get it. They didn't need a Savior in their minds. They just needed a King. So they thought. They didn't need to be delivered from their sins. They were righteous. They needed to be delivered from their circumstances and their sufferings. They didn't, need, they didn't think they needed a Savior to deliver them from the judgment of God that was about to fall on them because they were so sinful. I mean, come on, man. We're Abraham's children. Right? We're safe. We're the children of promise. We're the children of the covenant. We've been adopted. We've been chosen as a nation by God. We're okay. And this man, he's not the Messiah we're looking for, and so they turned on Jesus. Now the truth is this, church. Jesus is the King. Jesus arrived as the King. You say, well, Pastor, I thought he arrived as a lamb. No, he arrived in the form of a lamb as a sacrifice, but he arrived as a king. Listen, you can't become king if you're truly king. You always are king. He arrived as a king, but here's the point. He cannot bring his kingdom to its fullness with all of his promises until he has provided salvation for his people in the kingdom. Because as we've been seeing in the Sermon on the Mount, his kingdom is a kingdom of salvation. People in the kingdom are people who have been saved from their sins. They can't be in a kingdom, there can't be a kingdom for Israel or anybody else until the sin has been paid. He could not provide a kingdom until the provisions to get in that kingdom have been met. They couldn't be delivered from their enemies. They couldn't be delivered from their circumstances. They could not be delivered from their suffering until they had been delivered from their sin. And that's why he had to die. That's why he had to die and why he had to rise. And that's the gospel. That's the message that he preached. And that, that's the message that the apostles preached. And that the, that's the message that's been preached after the resurrection. And that's the message that the New Testament writers gave us. And that's the message that the true church has preached ever since then up until this very morning. That's the message of the gospel. They should have believed it. They had all the evidence right in front of their face. They should have believed it. They should have believed that what they truly needed was salvation from their sins, not their circumstances. That they, they should have believed that the Messiah was going to come and die and rise and then reign at some other later time. He was going to come and provide salvation spiritually for His children and then deliver them into the kingdom of promise. You say, well, why should have they believed it, Pastor? Well, you might say they should have believed it because of their understanding of the sacrificial system, right? All of the sacrificial animals that have been massacred every day in the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, 
all the days of atonement, all the other sacrifices, what did all of it point to? What were they looking at? They should have known, right? And so when John said, this is the Lamb of God, they should have been able to put that together. But they didn't. They couldn't. And if they couldn't make that connection, why? They should have known because of what Isaiah 52 and 53 says. So let's go there. Because Jesus appears in Isaiah 52 verse 13 to Isaiah 53 verse 12. This is about my servant, the Messiah. This is the fourth chapter on the Messiah as the servant of Jehovah. It appears in chapter 42, it appears in chapter 49, chapter 50, and now in chapter 52. And in those previous chapters, Isaiah has already presented some featured characteristics about the Messiah who is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the fourth of those chapters. And it really begins, as I said, in, in chapter 13, or chapter 52, verse 13. Because keep in mind, folks, Chapter divisions are not part of inspiration. Neither are verse numbers. They were not added till the 13th and 16th century. So they're not part of inspiration. And if I had my way, John MacArthur said, he agrees with me, so he must be right. He, John MacArthur said, if I had my way, I would back the chapter division up. Because that's where it begins. Now the, now the servant of Jehovah, he doesn't speak here. You never hear Jesus Christ speaking. But one writer said He haunts the poem because He is here. This is a wonderful, wonderful prophecy concerning the Messiah. And it breaks down into really five categories. And we're going to walk through each one of those five categories, each one about three verses long. It gets more profound. It gets more weightier and even sometimes more lengthier as we go. And it accumulates... And a powerful, powerful presentation of the Messiah. But another thing that I want you to note about this text is that it is sorrowful. This text is sad. You read this and you can't help in your mind. It, it never breaks the, the sobbing tone to it. It's dark. And, and it's darkness. It, it just, it's weeping and sobbing. And it sets the background of everything that's going to be going on. As we come to verse 13, we're going to be introduced to the Messiah, the King, the Lord Jesus Christ in His career. Folks, this is a remarkable prophecy. This is a remarkable prophecy. And I've been studying this passage for some time. And every time I study this passage, the prophecy gets more and more remarkable. Before there can be glory, there must be suffering. Point number one, we see an astonishing revelation. An astonishing revelation. Verse 13. Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Notice the word behold in Hebrew is hanek. And it means give me your full attention. Give me your full attention. The Messiah is about to be, in, to be introduced for the fourth time in the prophecy of Isaiah as the servant of Jehovah. And he says, give me your full attention. My servant, Abed in the, in the, Greek, in the Hebrew. And it means slave. It's a word referring to one who, who works in obedience to his master. 
He has no will of his own, only that of his master, and he lives to please his master. God identifies Jesus Christ. God identifies the Messiah as the slave, the obedient, submissive slave of Jehovah. The servant of Jehovah. The slave of Jehovah. That's a messianic title. The one who comes to do the will of Jehovah. He is the one Israelite. The one whose work will prosper on such a level Okay, on such a level that he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And at the end, he will leave the world utterly speechless. You see, God had been disappointed with the nation of Israel. Here is the one true servant of Jehovah. The one true Israelite who will effect the redemption of his people. The redemption of his people from their sins and their circumstances and their sufferings and their enemies. Now, I want you to notice, I want just a note here in that in their text with the word my servant. My servant. There are four times that the prophets here have used behold my or behold referring to Messiah. There's here. And then there's behold, where he says, behold my servant. And then it's in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, again, behold my servant, referring to the Messiah. And in Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 12, it says, behold the man, which tells us that Messiah will be the servant of God, but he will also be a man. And then in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, it says, behold your king. So the Messiah will be a servant of Jehovah, he will be a man, and he will be king. And then in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9, he says, Behold your God. So the Messiah will be a man, the prophecy says, he will be a man, he will be God, he will be a servant, and he will be king. And those, two, those terms are juxtaposed to each other, aren't they? Man and God, servant and king. But he's all that. And the prophecy says, look at him. Give full attention to him. Those quartet titles, those powerful titles, man, God, servant, and king, become the theme of all four Gospels, don't they? Matthew presents Jesus as a king. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. Luke presents Jesus as a man. John presents Jesus as a guy, as God. Isaiah says, look at my servant. He has come to do the will of his Father. And his only meat and his only pleasure is to do the will of the Father. But notice what it says. Notice what the revelation says. He will prosper. He will prosper. Don't you like that? He will prosper. Listen, church, I want you to be reminded this morning that Jesus Christ was not the, uh, was not the result of some well-intended life gone bad. He was not some great man that came to earth and tried to make a difference on the earth and, and tried and tried and tried and failed and then just was crucified at the end. Jesus didn't come to some kind of, as a martyr for some noble cause that he wasn't able to pull off. The prophecy says, my slave will prosper. The Hebrew literally has it here. Speaks about acting intelligently. To act wisely. And in the Hebrew language, this word always means to act in success. 
You know, one of, the, one of the good parts about Hebrew that you don't have in Greek is in Greek you have all kinds of nuances, but in Hebrew, the word means what the word means. It is what it is. That is why many times if you read English translations, it will take this Hebrew word and it will translate it into uh, will prosper or will be successful. So like in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, remember what God said to Joshua? You will, you, will have good, you will make your way successful, or you will have good success, or you will be prosperous. And the idea here is, folks, listen, is that success is the result of hard work and strategy. He will act intelligently. He will act wisely. He will act success, successfully. He will accomplish my work. He will prosper. And by the way, the verb has to kind of give the idea of increasingly so. The verb does never speaks of someone who just fell into success by accident. It is success because of effort. It was success because of planning. And what does the prophecy say of the Messiah? He will not fail. He will accomplish the will of God. He will do what God sent him to do. He will do it in such a way that the prophecy says he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, as we read that in English, that seems kind of redundant, doesn't it? I mean, you read it high, lifted up, greatly exalted. Sounds a little redundant, but it isn't. It isn't. It is he will be lifted high. Then he will be lifted higher. And then he will be lifted highest. God is going to take the Messiah. God is going to take the servant of Jehovah and He's going to make Him high. He's going to make Him higher. And then He's going to make Him highest. Listen, church, I believe that the high looks at His resurrection. The higher looks at His ascension. And the highest looks at His coronation. He will be so successful in what He's going to do that God will raise Him from the dead. God's going to take Him into glory. And then God's going to sit Him at His right hand. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is going to give him a name above every name, church, and that is the name Lord. Kurios, Master. And that is the name of which every knee is going to bow. God is going to make him the ruler over everything in the universe. He is going to be the king of the universe as well as the head of the church. And the astonishing thing here about this revelation is that he will come, he will succeed, he will accomplish his purpose of God. This great purpose that God set out for him. Church, Jesus Christ accomplished what he was sent to do. This is the astonishing revelation of the Messiah. And the astonishing revelation of the Messiah is that he came, that he is a slave of Jehovah, and he will be successful in what he does. But these great words in verse 13 then immediately fade away in the language of verse 14 where we see an astonishing humiliation. Astonishing revelation and his astonishing humiliation. Verse 14 says, And many were astonished at thee. His vintage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the, than the sons of men. This seems kind of bizarre for us, doesn't it? The next verse talks about how the nations and the kings 
are going to be silenced by His glory. What's going on here? His career will be successful. He will be high and lifted up and He will be crowned with all glory. But Isaiah says here that His vintage was so marred more than any man and His form more than the sons of men. You know, the prophecy talks about in verse 14 that men will be astonished by Him, but not because of His exaltation. They will be astonished at Him because of His humiliation. The many there basically speaks of Israel because they're the only ones that saw His humiliation. The word astonished, we might want to talk about just for a moment. Again, the Hebrew language sets the context for us. The word could be translated desolate, Wasted, to be thrown literally into a numbed condition, to be petrified or to be paralyzed. It's basically the idea of being shocked out of control. That's what's going to happen to the Messiah. It's going to be so shocking and so paralyzing. What's the shock? Well, the shock was that his vintage is so marred What was the shock? The shock was his appearance. The shock was his face. The shock was his body. The the appearance has to do with his face and the form has to do with his body. And it says that it was marred more than any man. What does that mean? His face and his body, church, was so totally disfigured and was so totally distorted that we were literally saying the Hebrew that they were so shocked because he was totally beyond being recognized as a human. When Jesus Christ walked down the Via Dolorosa, the road to Calvary, the prophecy says that the people along the, along the Via Dolorosa will be so shocked, will be outside of themselves because He will not be recognized as a human because He will be so distorted, so disfigured that it destroys every resemblance of a man. Some people have thought, and I've actually read, where people said that, well, this means the Messiah is going to be ugly. That he's going to be repulsive to look at when you walk on the earth. And that he was going to be disformed in some way. That's not what this is saying at all. The truth is that the the Messiah was God in human flesh, right? He was God in human flesh. He was a sinless ideal of every human creation. Therefore, he was beautiful in every feature. He was the manliest man. And he was the most strikingly handsome man who had ever lived. That's not the point. This looks at his crucifixion and what led up to it. The prophecy says that he will be so disfigured, literally so mutilated, so distorted, that he is beyond human recognition. Psalm 22 gives us some idea of what's going on here on the cross when he speaks these things in Isaiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 14, where the prophecy says, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like, pot, like a potsherd or like cracked pottery. And my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. 
You know, the prophecy had already said back in chapter 50, verses 5 and 6, that they're going to pluck out the very hairs of Jesus' face. And they're going to spit in the face of God. We all know that the, the what happened to Jesus. We understand that He was scourged. And He was beaten literally raw. Almost to death with lashes of His body that was so vast and so massed that the wounds was actually pouring out blood. We understand that a crown of thorns were crushed down on his head, the thorns being about two or three inches in length, and blood was running down his face. We understand the fact that the, Jew, that the Romans would take this whip and they would tie their victims up with their feet off the ground just a few inches and their, their hands tied up over their head to make all their, their muscles taunt. And we understood that they took the, 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 the whip and they drove it into the side of the victim and all that glass and all that bone and all that metal would take, take root inside the flesh and then in absolute merciless barbaricness, they would take the handle and they would rip it back and they would rip every bit of the flesh all the way down to the bones. And this they not only did to his sides, but they did to his face. And one, medical, one contemporary medical doctor said that it is very feasible that Jesus had to carry the, that one of the reasons why Christ had so much trouble with the cross is because he had the cross with one arm and he was holding in his guts with the other. That's the astonishing revelation or the astonishing humiliation. We understand the sleeplessness of the nights leading up to his crucifixion, the weariness. We understand from Scripture that he was slapped in the face, that he was punched in the face like a, like a punching bag. We understand he was spit on. We also, we also know that he had no comfort, humanly comfort, and you, can, and you can understand the distortion of the look on his face. And the prophecy says that he could be barely recognized as a human. As Jesus walked down that road to Calvary, the crowd must have been saying, and the prophecy said that the crowd would be absolutely in shock, and they must have been saying, is that a man? Is that a man? Because, folks, what you and I need to always remember is that Jesus Christ was not paying the wrath of a crowd of bloodthirsty mob heathens. We need to understand that Jesus Christ was paying the wrath of holy God for you. For you. We also understand in order for them to Nailed Jesus' hands to the ends of the cross. His arms and his legs were dislocated in the sockets of their bodies, of his body, and pulled and nailed to a cross. It was an astonishing humiliation. This can't be our Messiah. Can't be. They're shocked. They're astonished. This can't be our Messiah. He's too repulsive. This can't be our Messiah. An astonishing revelation and an astonishing humiliation leads us thirdly to an astonishing exaltation. 
Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouth at him. For that which had not been told them, they shall see. And that which they had not heard, they shall consider. Folks, listen, this speaks of his exaltation. The scene changes once again with a jolting shock. They were shocked at his revelation. This is not the Messiah we wanted. We don't have a spiritual problem. We have a domination problem. We're okay. We're Abraham's children. We need a king that's going to free us from Rome. And they were astonished that this, was being, this guy was claiming to be the Messiah. And then this is astonishing humiliation. We don't even recognize him as a man. He's repulsive. He can't be the Messiah. And then they're shocked once again. But it's not only the Jews that are shocked, because remember, only the Jews saw the humiliation, right? It is not only the Jews that will be shocked at his exaltation. It will be the entire world. It will be every king that's speechless. The word sprinkle there that says in your English Bible literally means to startle. They were astonished at the marred man, and they will be astonished that that marred man will be exalted. Can you imagine the Jews who turned Jesus Christ over to the Romans to be crucified and saw what they saw as he was walking up the road to Calvary? Can you just imagine the day when he's going to split the sky and he's going to come down and he's going to step foot on the Mount of Olives and the prophecy of Ezekiel says that the Mount of Olives are going to split in two. He's going to come in power and great glory and that every Jew that looked at him and every Jew that rejected him and every Jew that handed him over to the Romans and every Jew that had him beaten unrecognizably will at that very moment recognize this is the man that we killed and this is the man that's coming in power. Wow, he was the Messiah, but now it's too late for us. Now it's too late for us. Not as a nation, but as an individual person. Although God will save the nation Israel, Romans eleven twenty six, many Jews have died and gone to hell and will die and gone to hell. They're astonished at his exaltation. What does he say about their astonishment? The kings, verse 15, the kings shall shut their mouths at him. The day will come, church, when the only thing that the kings of the world will be able to do, that they'll be so shocked, they'll be so electrified that they can't even speak. The Bible says that the moon will go out, the stars will go black, and the Son of Man will come in blazing glory out of heaven. Matthew 24 speaks about the fact that He will come in blazing glory. Daniel talks about that. We also learn from the book of Revelation that the people will be so shocked and so startled and in such amazement at the glory that they will cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them to hide them from the glory of the One that sits on the throne. And every eye is going to see that. Only the Jews, only first century Israel saw the humiliation, but every eye is going to see the exaltation. Every eye is going to see that. The psalmist said in Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. But he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. 
the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. When God installs him as king of the world, he will be the only king and the nations will see his glorious exaltation. They were stunned at his crucifixion, when the, the ones that saw it, and the whole world will be stunned when he returns in glory. And every kingdom, every president, every ruler, when Jesus Christ comes, will be able to do but one thing. Who's ever seen a politician speechless? It's going to happen on that day. Because he's going to come in such glory. He's going to come in such power. He's going to come in such divinity. He's going to come in such radiance that the prophecy says in Isaiah 52, 15 that the only thing that the kings of the world will be able to do is shut their mouths. You go ahead and speak against my father now. Mr. Politician, Mr. Ruler of the world. You go in and have your heyday right now, that's fine. The day will come where my God will shut your mouth. And the best part about that is, is that I get to see it. The second part about that is, is that Jesus Christ doesn't shut their mouth because he wins a debate blue, does he? He shuts their mouth just because he comes in more glory in his fingernail than they've ever had in their entire body. He shuts their mouth because he comes in glory, not because he wins an argument. He shuts their mouth having not said a word because he comes in glory. Those who thought they had the right to speak, those who were proficient at wagging their tongue, will now be speechless because the glory of the Son of God will come and they will be silenced. Psalm 16, verse 10. The psalmist says, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, whether wilt thou suffer, neither wilt thou suffer that holy one to see corruption. What is that? That's the resurrection, right? That's the resurrection. He says, you're not going to leave my body to languish in the grave. There is a path to life. And Psalm 16 promises the resurrection of the Messiah. Paul, uh, Peter preached it rather on the day of Pentecost. The great sermon on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection is here. In Isaiah 52. In, Isaiah, in Psalm 16. The world was shocked. When their supposed Messiah came the way He did, the world was shocked at His humiliation. And they will be shocked that they didn't understand what they should have understood. And they will be shocked when they see Him coming in glory. And all they will be able to do is shut their mouth. The number four, and quickly, lastly, that leads us to an astonishing rejection. I'm going to let Isaiah have the final word on this in chapter 53, verse 1. Who hath believed our report? Who believed it? You know, that's a sad reality, isn't it? They had all the evidence right in front of them. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy right in front of them. But Isaiah said, who believed it? Who, who believed it, folks? 
a small remnant, right? Who believes it today? A small remnant. What an astounding rejection. But it begs the question, what about you? That's the question that needs to be asked and answered by you individually. What about you? Do you believe this morning that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again from the grave the third day for your justification? That one day He will come as the exalted King and take His people into the promised kingdom and you realize that there could be no kingdom if there was not first humiliation because He had to die for the sins of His people before He could give them the promise? He could not reign until He saved He could not receive His glory until He first suffered. That's the Gospel. And in believing the Gospel, there's salvation for you. And that would make the most, that would make today the most wonderful day of your life. There was an, there was an astonishing revelation. There was an astonishing humiliation. There will be an astonishing exaltation. But there's always an astonishing rejection. This is the suffering servant of Jehovah who came and was successful in why he came. Folks, I stand before you this morning and I'm and I, we could all go to the mountaintops and shout at the top of our lungs, hallelujah, praise to God, and it would never be enough in the fact that our, that our servant of Jehovah was successful in what he came to do. God cannot ever fail. And God did not fail in what he came to do in Jesus Christ. He was successful. He was successful. How about you this morning? Have you bowed the knee before the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Have you confessed and repented of your sins and asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? And as a result of that, your life has changed, your heart has changed, and the work of the Spirit is going on in your life, and you're a new creation? No one meets Jesus Christ, folks, and leaves the same. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are made, all old things are passed away, everything has become new. Have you met the Savior of the Gospel of Holy Scripture? I'm not talking about the Savior of church membership. I'm not talking about the Savior of religion. I'm not talking about the Savior of good rhetoric, good talk. I'm talking about the Savior of the Scripture. The Savior that changes lives because His deed was successful. Even though He was humiliated, He was successful. How about you this morning? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, Lord, we stand in awe this morning at the fact of Your truth. The truth about the Messiah. And Father, that He was in His humiliation doing the work of the Father. And that was a work in which He was successful. And we thank You and praise You this morning for our salvation being secure in Christ. And Father, if there be one here this morning that has 
never bow the knee before the Lordship of Christ. Father, for them, the day today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And I pray, Father, that if there be one today that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that you would draw them to yourself today, humble them, crush their pride, bring them to an end of themselves, that they may be saved today. Is that you today? Would you say, Pastor, I've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. I've never repented of my sins. Yeah, I'm a church member. Yeah, I've got the right talk. I'm religious, but I've never truly been born again. Is that you today? In a group this size, I would imagine there's somebody out there that's, that would say, yes, I'm religious, but I'm lost. Is that you? If that's you today, then I would encourage you to seek me out. And we can show you from the Bible what it means to be born again. We have a wonderful Savior. We have a wonderful God. We have the only God. Because He is the one and only true living God. And He is the only God out of all religions that offers a Savior. Hallelujah. Glory to His name. Lord Jesus, we praise You for coming for us, Your people. We praise you and thank you, Father, that you sent the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. We praise you and thank you, Father, for the elect, there has been their salvation that has been guaranteed in Christ Jesus. We praise you, Father God, today that you love us. You gave yourself for us. Lord, I pray. Take the words of your truth today and continue to plant them in our hearts. We thank you and we praise you. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.